Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. With Matt Petrowski. It's been way too long. It has been way too long. But uh, you had another kid or something, didn't you? <laughs> In, yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't do it that span of a time since we last saw each other. That was DevCon. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, Yeah, but you had a kid since DevCon. I did. I had a, uh, a new daughter. So I've now successfully completed all possible combinations. Because <laughs> I had sons before the daughter. Right. So very rewarding when you feel like you've done all genetic possibilities. Both genetic possibilities? <laughs> yes. But boy, I tell you, two boys, oh, once they exit the cute stage of uh, age two and they go into four and four into two, oh, they bicker, bicker, bicker. In fact, my uh, my mother sent me a cartoon that was pretty funny. Um, had this little picture of this new father holding a baby in one cell, and in the next cell, the baby's screaming. And part of his comment is, "It's great to have a new baby in the family." And then the third cell shows these two kids off the end of the couch, just completely bickering with these extremely large exclamation points. He says, "What's great about it is it drowns out all the bickering and complaining from the other kids." That's and funny. It's true. It's true. Oh, so what do we have? FileMaker news, and then it's not FileMaker. FileMaker cool, and then our main topic. Yep, a full suite of podcast goodness. Something we haven't had for a while. So let's jump into the news. I've got three items this time. The first one I've got is um, I was very interested. Well, I have been interested, and always love playing around with FileMaker design, doing layout design. But um, Albert Haram, I don't know how to say the middle part. It's Haram or Haram? I think it's Haram Alvarez, yeah. He's got a thing that he's been doing for a while, and usually a collection of uh, just a few people, maybe 10 or 20, that show up online. And he does this via one of Adobe's online um, tools for having a little seminar or something. It's called the Design Caucus. Not Not too fond of the choice of word there and it's nice and it's uppity up caucus but Mm -hmm. uh reads sort of funky but anyway he just did a design smackdown now he had done um a teleseminar before that prior something about an economic recovery kit or something like that where he basically goes through and reviews solutions or really good tips and tricks and he's got some really good stuff in there so the url that you can go to is smallco.net slash index.php slash services. And then if you click on his link, Design Caucus, you can actually watch those. And I would suggest watching uh, the one previous to the um, SmackDown that he's got that was in the news. I watched that one, but I've yet to watch the SmackDown, and I'm just going to take a look at that, spend a few, I think it runs about an hour but it's worthwhile to see some of the stuff that people have in there in terms of t- the techniques and then the design that they do. It's really pretty nice. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another item that we have is uh, there's a, there was a posting of... A, it mentioned itself as yet another FileMaker forum, and I sort of chuckled to myself because those are pretty much well-established. There are two popular FileMaker forums. There's fmforums.com, and then there is the FileMaker Today Cafe, and those are the two most popular trafficked forums. Separate, separate was, from FileMaker's TechNet. TechNet correct, and that, that's only uh, FileMaker right. uh, TechNet members, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, FM Overflow. It's, it looks like it's taking advantage of the platform that was released uh, 
by Stack Overflow, which is basically an enhancement, or I, I guess it's it's a different variation. It's basically like Yahoo Answers, where somebody asks a question about something they don't know, then other people come in and they answer those, and then the uh, person who asked the question rates the answers and says, you know, this is the most valuable to me. And then other people can um, up or down those sort of dig style with um, plus or minus in terms of what they think the answers are in terms of whether they're valuable or not, and it creates a very valuable question and answer. So you can go search the site, search for whether your question has been asked. If not, ask your question. So it looks like they released a platform called StackExchange.com, and somebody created a um, subdomain off of that of fmoverflow.stackexchange.com, and it's a place where questions can be answered. Now, of course, you can always go and search the forums, and you can use Google to do that by using the qualifier of site colon whatever it is. So if you are if you have a question about file something specific to FileMaker that somebody else has potentially asked, then it's much easier to use Google and simply type in you know some of the keywords of your question and qualify that with site colon fmforums.com as an example and that will allow you to pull up the answers. Plus you've got the knowledge base over at filemaker.com. So that was pretty interesting. And the last item I have is um, FM Expression Editor. And this is done by a developer, Alex Babkov. He's over in Australia. And this is over at uh, FileMakerDesign.com slash expression. When he originally released this, it um, he was asking for a certain amount, but I'm guessing that either there was low promotion, nobody knew about it, or people weren't interested. And what this is, is it's a FileMaker calculation editor that has syntax highlighting and some other features, but it's not in FileMaker. The one big limitation that I see is that you're going to have to step outside of FileMaker because it's distributed as an Adobe Air application. I don't think that's necessarily a downside because it's nice to be able to um, you know, be outside of FileMaker for some things. True, and most of my editing I do with a uh, with um, TextMate on the Mac because it's got syntax highlighting and I'm able to do all my indenting and things like that. Mm -hmm. I haven't actually opened it, and I need to take some time and take a look. But, I mean, boy, if he took the time and uh, re-engineered the calculation editor, that's a lot of logic. Yeah, it is. Every possible step. Uh, a, a lot of the plugins libraries are there. So you understand all the different plugins, what they, what their syntax is. I'm gonna have to open that. I really, really respect uh, a lot of the stuff that Alex does. Uh, he's he's one of those guys that there's there are people that work in FileMaker and stay in FileMaker, and there's nothing against FileMaker. Then there are guys that step outside. They go into the uh, PHP API and learn a little bit about PHP, and they go into PHP. And then there's Uber developers like Jeff Coffey who go into uh, Ruby and then Python and doing a lot of things outside of FileMaker. And he's one of those guys, you know, has really well-rounded knowledge about not just FileMaker but a lot of other technologies. So definitely worth checking out. I guess about the only limitation would be that that I would find is having it in FileMaker, um, you'd be able to actually test your calculation against data in the database, which you would not obviously be able to do if it's in Adobe Air. So I actually write a lot of my uh, calculations in the data viewer 
with big let functions, and then as I'm writing it, I can actually test the function. And what I do is, is I call it sampling a specific line of the let to see sort of how it's going as I go down the calculation. Yep. Um, so that's oh, kind of it's, and, and then and then when I'm done, I just copy and paste it into where I'm going to use it, which is almost never a calculated field. <laughs> yep. And that's that's how I write my custom functions too. Basically, whatever the input parameters are, I just define those as the same named calculation variables. And then when I'm ready to put in the custom function, I just uncom or I comment them. Yep. And doesn't uh, do doesn't do recursion in the data viewer though, huh? No, not at all. Nope. That's when you have to put those uh, put that in the uh, custom function yourself. All right, so those, that's our news. I actually added one thing to that, which is the Pause on Error conference, which is going to be in Portland, Oregon, January looking, 21st and 22nd. Looking forward to that. I did register. I'm hoping I can get the tickets and get out there. Three kids adds to your bottom line. Yeah, I can. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll understand, but since I have none, I can at some level really just take your word for it, you know. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you this. When a, when it comes to a bowl of cereal, the difference between a two-year-old and a four-year-old is night and day. I think wow. my four-year-old is eating more than me. Wow. That's crazy. I remember when I was a kid, I used to get sugar cereal, like Frosted Flakes, and then I would put three or four teaspoons of sugar on it. Cause oh, I, gosh. I love the sugar at the bottom of the milk, you know? That <laughs> special consistency and when you're done with all the flakes. That might be why I'm so tall, because of the huge amount of caloric intake when I was a child. I don't know. <laughs> it could be, but let's, uh, let's sweeten the podcast and head over to It's Not FileMaker. That's funny. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to make you go first. All right. Um, lately, I've been, I'm sort of, I would call myself a haphazard Twitter user. I, uh, you know, it's nice. It's there. I'm noticing that it's really nice for uh, getting the word out because it's just a different avenue for people that want to they want to listen via Twitter rather than using RSS or SM, well, SMS doesn't really apply here but uh, Twitter Bar is what I'm talking about. Twitter Bar is a Firefox extension that basically whenever you're at a web page if you think that that's going to be interesting to other people you can just go into the URL bar and then you can add some additional text to the end of the URL, or you, a space after the URL, then some additional text. Then you type dash dash post, and then it posts to your Twitter account, which is really nice. Now, it only works with one account is the one limitation. For example, throughout the course of a day, there will be things that I'm looking at that are FileMaker-related, some that are Drupal-related, some that are just general Mac-related, and I've got it connected to my one account, which is... Uh, twitter.com slash Matt Petrowski. But then I also have uh, FileMaker Mag as a Twitter account right. and a Drupal site of Got Drupal. And so it'd be nice if I could switch between the accounts just clicking a little pop-up in there and send the URL or whatever it is that I'm looking at that's interesting. But it's really nice. I mean, you just you think about it and you have to be proactive, but you go in the URL bar and it's super quick to get it out there to uh, other people. Cool. So that's... Twitter bar. Twitter bar. What do you have? I've been really digging um, Dropbox lately. Oh, yeah. And you had some stuff to add on to this. But basically, this is a commercial program that you – actually, no, it's free. 
there's commercial levels, but you get two gigs for free, and it's Correct. a program that you you run on your Mac, and I think it's also a cross-platform, um, that synchronizes a folder. So it's kind of like what Mo- what uh, MobileMe was supposed to promise, but it doesn't really, where you get a folder in your home folder, and anything you put in there automatically gets synchronized up to the Internet. You can access it from a re- from the web page. Uh, I think it's dropbox.com. And then it synchronizes that folder across all of your computers. So I've been putting FileMaker databases in there that I work on from different places because I have three Macs, my main home machine, uh, my small portable tr- that I travel with, and the machine that I work on, uh, an iMac, when I'm working at the state of Oregon, which is most days. And I have all these things that I needed to be synchronized, and it was always kind of a pain to have flash drives or something like that. So now I just drag it into my Dropbox folder, watch my menu bar icon uh, spin for a second as it uploads that file to the internet. And then it also works really beautifully in conjunction with other, with other things, like, for example, if you use 1Password, mm-hmm. um, 1Password, rather than using the MobileMe um, password synchronization thing, the... Uh, what do they call that? The keychain? Right. Instead, I just does it as a file. So every individual uh, site that you go to that has a unique password goes into a um, into the 1Passwords keychain, which is stored on Dropbox. And then it only is – if, if I add a new site or if I change a password, only that one little tiny document gets saved, not the whole entire thing, which is pretty sweet. Because it looks, yes. it looks in inside of the uh, package on the Mac. It doesn't necessarily just sync the entire thing, which, of course, is a downside if you have a FileMaker database with a bunch of pictures, and you go in and you add one character of text. Now the entire database needs to be resynchronized. At least I figure it does it. Maybe they're smarter, but I would figure it actually... No, uh, it does. It's the, it's the whole binary. Although right, yeah. I have noticed... Have you noticed this? You can actually work on the file... When you open it from within Dropbox, and it doesn't sync until you actually close the file, or at least right. in my preliminary, you know, it recognizes uh, Dropbox looks at the fact of whether or not the file is open by the OS or by the application. Yep, and I don't know how it would do with, um, I haven't tested it to see what it does for synchronization problems. For example, if I've got two computers next to each other, open up a file on both of them, at the same time, like a FileMaker database, add a, add a different record in each of them and then close the file within a couple seconds of each other, which is going to then trigger a conflict. I'm not sure what would happen there, but I, could, I should test <laughs> you that. You crack me up. You always like playing with fire, don't you? I do, yeah. <laughs> I got to know. Oh, you're the kid that blew his finger off with an M80, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually have you know, third-degree burns on my leg from when I was a kid playing with fire, so, you know. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yes, I totally am using that same setup. Dropbox with um, 1Password, as a matter of fact. But then there are also, what I do is on, uh, there's a lot of articles popping up recently about how you can leverage uh, Dropbox for not just that, but for any of your applications. So, for example, in my Dropbox, I have a folder called Personal. And then in that, I have um, a folder where I basically store application data. So anything that would normally be in, at least on your Mac, in your library application support. Yeah, so you, example, yeah user library preferences. Correct. Like FileMaker so like, plugins. Uh, yes, FileMaker plugins, um, TextMate, anything where there are, are there's functionality that's application specific 
that's really awesome because then just on each computer, you have to go into the terminal and do what's called a symbolic link. Um, or there are some Mac applications. If you do a uh, search, in fact, I know that uh, Mac App Storm and some other sites have uh, done a lot of good articles about how you can symlink those without actually having going into the terminal and making it so that it works. But yeah, I synchronize everything. And in fact, here's another cool thing that I did. Um, at my office condo, I have a security camera. And that security camera only supports FTP. Now, on my servers, I don't run FTP because that's in the clear. I want to run SFTP, which mm -hmm. is, you know, more secure. Right. Well, since it doesn't support it, I'm like, well, forget that because I'm not going to run an FTP server on my server and open up a potential security hole. So what I did is I created a, a separate Dropbox account. I then, what you can do is between different Dropbox accounts, you can send, um, you can share a folder in the Dropbox interface on the web. You, that will send an email to the other Dropbox user. They verify and say, yes, okay, I want to share. And what happens is you can now share between different Dropbox accounts. So what happens is this webcam software, which is on Windows, and it, Dropbox works on Windows and Linux, it will take all of its webcam uh, shots it uploads them to its account, and I have that folder shared with my regular Dropbox account, and I've got the iPhone client. So basically, I can look at any of the webcam screenshots that are coming off of my Windows-based webcam, syncing to one Dropbox account, which is then syncing over to my normal Dropbox account, and it's really pretty sweet. Hmm. I mean, it completely bypasses any of the other software in terms of you know, using what it's, you know, what it provides and what the limitations may be. It gives you real security, too. It's it's nice. I'm loving Dropbox, as a matter of fact. Cool. So. And speaking of cool, let's go into FileMaker Cool. A few, a few years ago, you came out with something which I really, really dug, uh, the theme library. And I think, which is, that was the third version of it, the uh, one from a couple of years ago which has been languishing, needing, and begging attention, which you're now finally giving it. I am. I finally decided that I need to overhaul this. It had been done before expanding layouts came out, and uh, so I'm excited. I'm actually, this, is, this is very, very cool because it's, it's not just because I made it and I don't want people to go buy it because it, I made it, but what i'm what i've done in now is in the past it was basically this monolithic file that you had to download i had like collections of open source icons in there and you could get a filemaker database that would easily i think when it's expanded it was like 200 uh, megabytes now that's a painful download but what i'm doing now is i'm completely i've completely overhauled the interface i'm making it easier and what i've done is i've implemented this thing called theme packs so basically, all you're going to have to do is you download this one megabyte file. It'll be one, maybe two megabytes um, of a FileMaker file. And then what it does is it contacts a Drupal website. It uses XML RPC, and this is all behind the scenes. You don't need to know that I'm just you know, saying this because I think it sounds cool. But <laughs> it basically, the FileMaker database contacts the Drupal site, gets an updated listing of all of the different possible theme packs, whether they're new, whether they're updated, and then 
you just choose on you know any one of these files and then you choose to download it. It downloads it to FileMaker, dumps it out of a uh, container field, expands it, imports it into the storage file, and then gives you all of those items. Now all of those items can be a collection of icons that are all within a certain theme. Mm -hmm. It can be a layout. Any of the layouts that I've designed, there'll be there's, I think there are 25 or so in the uh, theme library three. All of those are going to be completely revised and overhauled. I will be adding some new layouts to those as time goes on. And then I have an objects area where formerly all of the objects were stored on an actual layout and you had to go into layout mode. Well, FileMaker containers now retain all information about native FileMaker objects. So portals, um, fields with f with preformatted um, time and date stamps or time and date formats, you know, long versus medium versus short. It's basically just this one really cool interface that you download all of these theme packs. You can then also create collections. Actually, you so, said something that we got to stop at for a second there. So yeah. you said FileMaker container fields now remember information about FileMaker graphic objects. So if you go to layout mode and you select a portal with all of its graphic content, and then you go to browse mode and you paste that into a container field. You're saying that you could give that file to somebody else. They could select it, copy it, go to layout mode and paste it, and the whole portal would be on their layout? Yeah, remembered. That's really cool. Or just drag and drop is what I do. Right, yeah. So basically you have one, you have one file, like the theme library, and it has a container with a portal in it, and you drag that into your layout. And it remembers everything that's on that portal, including conditional formatting, tooltips, um, all the other stuff. Very cool. So basically, like, one of the theme packs that I have is a portal theme pack. And all of those portals, there's like 15 or so, and they're all formatted differently with a different look and feel, but the fields that are in those portals already have conditional formatting applied to them that remembers, for example, um, font switching. So it'll use uh, Lucida Grand on the Mac, and then it'll switch, if the platform is Windows, it'll switch it to Tahoma. Uh, yeah, Tahoma. So it's, it's awesome. It's really awesome to be able to... And so the, the reason I did this was, for example... As I'm working on solutions, I'll do a tweak to some of my uh, the things that I use, but to get out a 200 megabyte file to people again would be such a pain. But now any of the theme library owners, I'll tweak a couple of my portals or I'll add a new one. I've created a new interface for a new solution, and I'll just throw that into my copy of the theme library where I have editor privileges, and I can then just simply click export. And for me, it'll put it up on the, the Drupal site, and when you open your theme library, a little star shows up next to the portals collection, and you can now just update it. You click the button, it goes and gets it from the website, pulls it down, and you have the latest and greatest. As soon as I update, you, uh, you've got the update. That's so awesome. And the, another cool thing is it's got um, collections in it, and collections are basically like projects. So basically what you can do is if you're working on a solution, I've got this really cool little metaphor where there's a paper clip next to everything that's in the theme library. So there's, uh, there's icons, there's objects, and layouts. Now, it mostly applies to um, objects such as portals, gradients, widgets, all the little things you use in layout mode, and then icons. So as you're perusing through the icons, you can create a new little collection. It's in a portal. You click the plus sign. It creates your collection. Call it uh, My Project X. 
Well, you just click this little um, paper clip on each of the icons that you're using in that particular project. You go over to the objects area and you click on the little portals, the gradients, the little toggle arrows, the widgets, whatever it is. And it, it saves all of those individual items into that project. So then when you go and select the project, it just loads all of those items that you're using for that particular project. Very convenient and easy to just drag them over, you know, switch from one project to the next, super easy. Mm -hmm. So cool stuff coming out. In fact, I will be sending out um, beta versions to a select group of people relatively quickly here. And one of the things that I'll be looking for in terms of help is uh, something that you said that I needed to do was uh, categorizing the icons. So anyone that's uh, going to spend a little bit of time and maybe uh, categorize some of those icons and help me out, they will be getting a free copy for sure. Cool. And lifetime access. <laughs> for this version. <laughs> Life lifetime television for women access. So the the thing that I've got that's vastly less cool than that, but it's been something that's uh, that I did uh, to solve sort of one problem that I had, and I've been it's been paying a lot of dividends, and that's been using replacing my use of multi predicate relationships for portals on sort of a heads up display page. Um, that sounds kind of complex. I was kind of thinking this maybe wouldn't be good for the podcast, but let's try. <laughs> um, because it's it's been so nice to be able to maintain it and to extend it and to uh, fill users' requests really quickly and easily, much more easily than it was than it used to be possible to do using the multi predicate relation solution. So here's how we worded it: using search results instead of multi predicate relationships. Right. So basically, a lot of the times you're building a relationship. And you're saying, you know, first name equal to first name, last name equal to last name. Uh, this won't make sense, but, uh, you know, Social Security greater than zero and whatever else. Well, you've let me use like yeah, four or five. I'll use this as my example. So let's say you've got uh, a list of accounts that you're looking at and you want to have a little filter on the main page to say, I really want to see accounts that have been created recently and also ones that have balances that are past due and also ones that have been assigned to me as a sales rep. And so there's sort of three different groups, and if any of those things were true, you want to see that account. So you've got um, three different things in the relationship if you were going to create that relationship, and what are you doing instead? Right. So before, well, just to set up the problem before, what I had to do is like, okay, well, I wanted the ones that have been created recently, and what I wanted was either, that means I have to have a global field that was either a date or a number field with a number of days to show me those, those ones. And if I put a date, that was nice because then I could just... I didn't have to make a calculated field, but if I wanted a number of days, if that's what the client was asking for, then I would have had to go through and make a calculated field that that um, calculated the number of days from today. Um, or actually, no, I would have had to calculate my number field and calculate that to a date that then I could then compare to the database. Yeah, or you'd have um, two, which two had a store predicates date. if you had a start and an end. But either way, I would have had to actually make a second calculated field because I couldn't just compare a number to a date with a relationship. You can't do yeah. that. Yeah, the, the things you compare have to be like type. The short answer would be you would have to add extra fields. You'd have exactly. to add cruft to your database. Right, exactly. Plus, if you've got different types of users or even just different individual users, you, um, it adds a lot of extra complexity. 
to so the calculation. Instead, you are... instead, what I'm doing is I'm still using those global fields to filter. So I still have a global field called number of days, a global field called uh, show just my um, records, a global field that's like... Uh, that has a drop-down list that says show all accounts, show accounts past due, show accounts really past due kind of thing. And those are filtered that then show me different numbers of records. But instead, when you click those things, it runs a trigger. It triggers a script. If you change any of those globals, it triggers this one central script that does a query, and and all the complexity in the solution lives in in the find command in the query. So it goes to find mode and says, oh, well, you just said, show me all records for me. Um, I'll go do this particular find. Or you said, show me all the ones for uh, greater th- for past due greater than 30. And it can then interpret that and say, oh, okay, well, you said, you know, past 30. That means I know go to the database and look for things that are older than such and such date or whatever. And so and all that logic can be done very, very easily with a variable in the script much more easily than you could do with a relationship. Yes. And, and then different... In fact, adding the relationship is going to add more management. For each item that you add to the graph, you are adding more potential confusion to the graph. Right. Because you have to reverse engineer it or you know, re-understand it when you look at it later down the road. Right. And the graph is something that you can't maintain during the day on a live solution easily. If you go True. in there, you know, it would be probably, it's actually not too bad to do on a separation model solution because you're not actually locking out uh, data records. Um, but even on a separation model solution, if you go into the graph and make a change, you know, the database is more exposed and it's a bigger thing to do. Whereas editing a single script is something that's has no effect on users, no screen flash, no nothing like that. Yeah. And that's, I mean... That makes so much more sense. You're, you're not adding extra fields. You're not adding extra relationships. And you're taking advantage of what you should be taking advantage, which is the search functionality. The search is fast because typically you're doing this on indexed fields. Right. Well, yeah, you have to. Right. You have to always. Well, if you have a relationship, it has to be on indexed fields. And if a search should also be on indexed fields. So well, the other thing that I thought was. On, but <laughs> right. The other thing that I thought was cool is. Um, you can add a checkbox that says, also show me uh, my, my other reps in my division or something like that. So a single checkbox, usually if you have a relationship-based solution like this, everything that you click constrains your data and shows you less. Um, but in this solution, I was able to have a checkbox that says, oh, yeah, also show me this other thing. And then the script says, oh, yeah, well, if you did that, then I'm going to actually extend the, ex- the found set and show you not just your stuff, but also other stuff that's related. Yeah. And then I use conditional formatting because I also have sets of things that make sense. So, for example, maybe I'll have a list of reps where you can see all, each individual sales rep, and it defaults to me. And then I have another checkbox that says show all reps. And if you click show all reps, then all the individual reps turn gray and then my find instantly changes to show me all the reps uh, accounts for the last 20 days or something like that. Um, but then if I uncheck show all reps, then it goes back to my previously selected set of reps that I had checked. Just me or me and two other people or whatever. That's nice. And it was, it's just really, I don't know, I've really been digging it and, uh, and loving how quickly 
I can do any kind of thing that the customer is asking for with this solution and how I never have to go to the graph to do it. Well, it makes, I mean, it makes so much more sense, but there's probably a lot of FileMaker developers that just aren't used to doing that. They're thinking from the standpoint of, I need to build this into the structure instead of I need to build this into the logic of the solution. Right, exactly. Whereas doing the script is, is the logic, doing the graph is your structure. And yep. the moral of the story should be, try to limit your additions to the structure as much as possible. In fact, I can't count the number of times that I've been in the graph and I'm so ready. I've already drug, uh, you know, taken a copy of a table occurrence or started to add a new table occurrence just in order to solve my immediate problem of accessing that particular data. Mm -hmm. When a lot of the times if I step back, if I look at the graph already, there's probably an, an existing path. I'm just not seeing it because what I'm seeing is, well, I'll just tack on an additional table occurrence off of this table occurrence rather than looking at the fact that if I go all the way through a couple of table occurrences, I can actually get the data that I want. Yep. Or I could use a search and actually get the results that I want. Simplifying in the graph. And then all the other thing, I well, I'm sort of a fanboy for scripting in general, but you can revise them. You can make multiple versions of them. You can copy oh, yeah. and paste them. You can make them contextless so they can be copied and pasted from one solution to another. Branching, um, uh, yeah. mass parameters. Exactly. I mean, it's, that's, that's, scripting is the lifeblood. Yep, you can use global variables. Hey, wait, our main topic. <laughs> global variables, how do you use them? Global variables. Well, I can tell you, in, I've been doing a couple of articles recently about how, basically, for most of my solutions, anything that has to do with how the solution is going to operate, I'm storing those within global variables. And I have a suite of three custom functions and two scripts. And the way that it works is like this. One of my custom functions is basically just like writing a let statement that defines a global variable. It's basically like let, double dollar signs, and then what I do is I take as the inbound parameter, whatever that is on the custom function, that's going to be the name of the defined variable. Oh, now, I just needed a solution for that the other day. I'm totally going to take that. <laughs> oh, well, well, check this out. Here's one additional thing that it does. In the process of actually defining the variable, and the name of the custom function is called var define, because you're going to define a variable. Now, mm -hmm. it's assumed that it's always a global variable. But what it does is it, it takes the name of that global variable and it puts it into a reserved special global variable called variables. So every time that you define a global variable using this custom function called var define, mm -hmm. it saves the name of all of the global variables that have been defined by that function. So this is where I'm saving, for example, application preferences, um, window specifications, size, dimensions, whatever. So once those are defined, part of the closing process of the solution is yet another function called vars save. And what it does is it recursively cycles through everything that's in that dedicated global variable called variables, where it knows all of the variables that I've defined via my custom function. Mm -hmm. And with one script called write variables, 
when the solution is closed, it writes and captures all of the variables in that variables function by setting them into a global field. And that global field, the way that, it, that the, the vars save works is it simply just walks through this return delimited list of all of the global variable names, and it puts them as a string that would be equivalent to an internal let function. And well, then what it, does the application do on startup? It uses a custom function called var eval, and it basically just evaluates this massively long string of return delimited values that are defined as global variables, and it simply replaces all global variables that were remembered on the closing of the solution and instantly replaces them when the solution is reopened. So what you have is user-based persistent global variables. Correct. Now, of course, in a single-user solution, that would work to set a global field. But in a multi-user solution, you'd actually have to write that string, that set of values, to a field on the user's profile. Correct. You would have a user's table, and that user would have a relationship to their table based on, say, something like get account name. And Mm -hmm. you would just write into that field for that user. And that way, each user, when they open up the solution, all of their persistently stored global variables are uh, returned to normal or the last known state. That's wicked cool. Oh, it's uh, I can't I can't tell you how much it has removed from all of my different filemaker solutions. I mean, I have one globals table and then I in that globals table, I use all my global fields and that's it. Globals pretty much don't exist in the rest of my solutions unless and the rest of my tables as you say unless absolutely necessary. Well, the, the, there's only a couple things that you absolutely have to use global fields for instead of global variables. One of them is making relationships. You can't Correct. make a relationship based on a global variable. Um, another one is, of course, uh, displaying the value on a layout without a web viewer. You could do it with a web viewer. Yeah. That, you know, to directly show the value, uh, you need a, a global field or you need uh, a calculation field that can grab the value from the global. Or, of course, you can use the um, Bruce Robertson method of using the global variable to populate a calculation of like a portal, for example, uh, called virtual lists, which is very cool if people haven't looked into that. I'll have to look at that. I've, I've, I may have come across it. but yeah, uh... he's, using, he's using global variables to populate portals and value lists and things like that. Nice. Well, Very nice. Globals are just, global variables are just the bomb. Yep. I still, I, I don't know, I, as much as I love them, I still actually like global fields for a lot of things too, because global fields don't really take up any space. I do keep them pretty much only in the interface side, and very rarely, the only time I ever have them in the data side is if I'm using them for relationships to relate to data that's in the same table that I'm in. Yeah. Um. And I that definitely use global variables myself for uh, for variable portal displays, being able to control because you can, you know, throw your multi keys in whatever you want. Yeah, and then you have solved some other problems too. You could also by keeping a log of all the ones that you define, you solve some of the problem of of mistyping the name by one letter. You can test for things like that. You can also have a central clear. So you can say clear, like if you do a relogging command, that you really want to clear all of your global variables. You have a log of all of them. You can you can reset them all to nothing, which is pretty cool. Yep. In fact, I should mention where people can get this if they want to. Um, 
super geeky here, but I have them on my uh, public GitHub. So it's at uh, GitHub slash Petrowski, P-E-T-R-O-W-S-K-Y. G-E-T, that's G-E-T-H-U-B dot com? Uh, G-I-T-H-U-B dot com. That's why I said it, because I knew. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just another version control system like uh, SVN, but it's decentralized. And um, if you want to act, that's actually where I'm storing all of my custom functions so that I use in uh, my different uh, FileMaker solutions. And when I update them, then that's where they get updated. So, Yeah, you and that one other guy are using GitHub. <laughs> yep, Brian Loomis. He's a, he's a Git <laughs> Oh, I, I like too. him. Yeah, he's in Boise. He's a great guy. Yeah, it's a smart developer, another yeah, one. Yeah, he is. So anyway, any other ways how you're using uh, global variables? Well, I definitely do a, some of the same things you're doing. And, and as, as is typical, when you and I discuss something in depth, I pick up ideas and, and copy your brilliance. And I will again in this, in this instance. I use them a lot for when I when the user logs in. I set a lot of, of uh, variables based on things like uh, what's the size and location of a window that's being drawn for utility purposes. I do a lot of off-screen window creation to do utility stuff like when I create a record and do some tests or stuff like that. I, I create a window at negative 2,000, negative 2,000, so it's in some virtual place away off the screen. But yeah. if I'm developing, I actually want to see that window on screen. So in my login script, I can say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually doing development now. So draw all my development windows on screen. So when I'm stepping through scripts, I can see them. Um, yeah, I, in fact, on my custom functions, one of the functions I use is a function called, um, custom function called developer, which basically says if the um, get account privileges is full access, then leave the window on screen and visible. Otherwise, draw it off screen by getting... Um, desktop window height and desktop window width and setting it all the way off to the farthest of, you know, what the desktop is, Yep. which, which is cool. Hmm. Uh, in search results, in FM search results, um, I didn't want to use any variable passing between scripts, and I didn't want to have any extra fields that I didn't need to do, and I wanted to make scripts totally contextless. So uh -huh. I'm using global variables extremely heavily there for every single... Detail. So every one of them starts with dollar dollar sr for search results, um, and that has been really really helpful too. Ooh, and that you just brought up a really good point right there. When you said dollar dollar, you know, sr for mm -hmm. script results, namespacing with with any type of variables becomes extremely important when you start to use, say, for example, other people's custom functions. When you start right. getting like custom functions off of Brian Dunning's website and stuff like this, mm -hmm. in fact, anybody who's writing custom functions, it's good if you will sort of define your own namespace with regards to the custom function so that it's not something that somebody else could potentially collide with. Yep. And so basically what that means is when uh, Matt mentioned that he's using SR, like sr dash and then whatever the name of his variable is mm -hmm. he's assuming that nobody else is going to use do uh, double dollar sign sr dash as well actually it's it's a law actually i have a u.s law passed to make it illegal <laughs> to use any other thing so and i'm i'm checking that actually goes back to like when um in the os 9 days and and earlier when uh the mac had those uh, four-letter extensions on every application, and there yep. was a registry, and you reserved your four-letter <laughs> extensions. I remember those. Type in creator. Yep. 
so and it's very much uh, like that. So I've come across it a couple of times, especially with uh, when you get into the really tricky um, custom functions that use recursion, such as um, Alex's, um, I forget what his last, Zuev, uh, his um, assign parameters function. He didn't namespace that, and I think I collided with it uh, at one time. Uh, he used like underscore script um, options or something like that. Because when you're using a custom function, you can use locally scoped variables, and until the recursion is finished, the locally scoped variables are still remembered. And I think they're still used from uh, from one iteration to the next. I may be wrong, and but I know that there are uh, potential collision problems. Is there any way that you could uh, query all of the currently defined global variables that that have been that are existing in a file nope see that's the that's the exact reason that I use for example my uh, var define function is um, because you can look within your own global variable that has a name of all variables that have been defined but of course if I don't want it to be remembered or restored then I just define it the standard way and in that situation mm -hmm. no there's nothing that gives you a list other than looking at the data viewer which namespacing does give you an advantage if you'll uh, if you'll use namespacing on w the definition of your global variables like um, the theme library when I'm working in that by namespacing I have like double dollar sign app and then it's app dot whatever app dot um, language, app.version, app. etc. versus, say for example, some specific feature that's in your website, for, or in your website, your uh, FileMaker solution. So, mm -hmm. for example, there, the predominant element, or one of the predominant features in the theme library for is um, a sidebar. So all of my ver global variables that are specific to the functionality of the sidebar, I have uh, sidebar.action, whether it's download or a regular user click, sidebar dot download dot latest or whatever. So that namespacing, and if you do that in your solution, you can end up with, you know, a super large number of global variables. You can end up with a hundred. But if you use oh, good namespacing that's a, that's a large number. <laughs> what do you have? Two hundred? Five hundred? There's probably fifty in just FM search results. Oh yeah. But if you use the namespacing, then when you sort by name in the data viewer, it, it gives you this really nice crystal clear view of what's going on in your solution. Because you can just scan right to that category and then look at the subcategories within that namespace. So it's really pretty cool. Very cool. So um, what about some of the limitations with, uh, with using global variables? Have you run across any? Um, as long as you don't give anybody access to be able to see them, the only thing you really need to know, that, as far as I'm concerned, is that anything in memory, if there's a developer that's you know adept enough and has enough desire, can scrape it out. So you can get you know a classical OS debugger and get a memory dump and try to go through what's in memory in FileMaker's memory and look at what has been saved into global variables. So you don't want to save things like um, plain text passwords that are, you know, maybe to, like, websites that 
have a lot of you know information you're going to want to do use a hashing strategy and make sure and encrypt that um, if you do want a, an encryption strategy I would just use the scriptmaster plugin and do like a SHA-1 which is probably the the best hashing method um, over something like MD5 mm -hmm. but it's it's extremely fast it's already there it's in Java and you can uh, you know encrypt that and then just have the logic to encrypt it back out okay of course, then your hashing strategy itself, you have to be able to hide that because somebody would be able to open the FileMaker file, again, if they're adept and willing enough, right. and try to uh, look through the binary. By just well, if, if somebody has phys physical access to your file, all bets are pretty much off when it comes to security. True. So that's, that's why the physical security of a FileMaker database is by far the most important one. Yeah. But um, yeah, as long as you other, don't store anything, as long as they don't have access through access uh, through the privilege set right. to look at the data viewer. Right. Well, of course, what that actually brings up one other thing. One of the things that you don't have with global variables is you can't control the security of who can actually set them and read them. Of course, any user would actually need to be able to read and write to them, but you don't get that. Um, you, can, for example, with a global field, you could have a uh, the the user ID. That actually, which is which can have be a global value that sets everything um, that the user can see in the database that actually can then be used to test for record level security. That can actually be securely controlled, so that it only is ever editable by a certain script when the user logs in. And the, if the user um, were to add that field to a layout or something like that, they could never change its value. That kind of a thing you couldn't really do with a you wouldn't really want to do with a global variable because you don't get the ability to say this can only be edited in certain circumstances. Um, it's just not part of the security model of FileMaker. True, but that's only provided that somewhere you've given them access to, you know, like you were saying, either run an evaluate function, which would just not be smart at all. Yeah, because if you did an evaluate function, for example, if you had some place in your solution where the user could type in a string and it ran the FileMaker evaluate command against that string. So let's leave, let's use the example that you gave me. For example, in FM search results, if you wanted to provide within the field a uh, Google-like feature where you can type in 3 plus 3, it sees that as a mathematical equation, and then you are going to run the evaluate. If a user figures that out, sees that you're doing the math within the field, they can run anything or pass anything through that function because you're passing it into an evaluate, including a let function, which would allow them to let, you know, define a variable. Now they're going to have to guess, hit and miss on some variables, but if they figure it out, then... You've just given them access to do whatever they want with they any could also, uh They could also just call the custom function and read back the previously defined variables that uh, your custom function sets up, right? Uh, yes, if they know that I basically store everything in a variable variables called mm -hmm. variables. <laughs> dollar dollar variables? Yes, dollar dollar variables. See, now I'm going to have to hash it. <laughs> yeah. You just give it some other name like dollar dollar Petrowski dash super dash secret dot variables. Yeah, yeah well, that's security <laughs> through obscurity. And mm -hmm. any time that you're going to try to obscure something, that's not as good as if you actually put security on the object, which would be hashing it. So, right. for example, since Theme Library is using 
Scriptmaster, it's very easy to just take that list of all of those variables and right before you set them into the global field, hash them and then just hash them out. Right. And you can do that based on any number of uh, keys or what they call salts to salt your hash. It can be based on, you know, the the IP of the the machine that the file's opened on. Of course, then hmm. when they open it on another machine, then right. you, you can't get, get it out because it won't uh, unhash properly, but... Right. Or unencrypt. So, yeah. But other than that, I don't know that there's too many security limitations. As long as you don't give them access to evaluate and as long as they don't have a privilege set that gives them access to see the variables in the data viewer, I mean, it is, it's the best place to store things without adding a lot of cruft. And if you add on good management by using namespacing, it's, you have a very tight, clean FileMaker solution that's much better than back in the day, for sure. Mm-hmm, for sure. And it's, I think that FileMaker knows that. I think they're going to keep you know, adding features for what we can do. I've, one of the requests I've had, which I don't think they're going to do, is um, which, which you're actually solving by your thing, is to actually have a $3 variable as opposed to you know, 2 that would be persistent uh, maybe across closing and opening the file for a user or actually available in multiple files. So right now, global variables, actually this is one of the limitations. They're only available in the file that you're in. Correct. You can't read them or change them um, from some other file, which actually is very good for security. So something if, they, if you open up some other database, you can't make a relationship to the one that you're in and read any of the variables, which is yep. great. Whereas you can do that with fields, uh, which is actually a security. Some might say security flaw in the current FileMaker. Um, but there is a way around that if you do have that need. For example, I a lot of times, depending on what you're, ha- if you use a separation model, if you want one file to do something and it needs something that you're storing in a global variable, short of creating a global field and then creating external relationships where you have to use you know ESS which sometimes you don't want to do then the best way to do that is using a plugin that does provide the ability to transfer whatever information you want through the plugins memory space for example scriptmaster has the ability to set a java variable and that then becomes global to filemaker so you can go across files well, that would be one way, but couldn't you also use your custom function and uh, simply call a script, a FileMaker script, uh, between the two files and say, pass over to the other file a list of all the variables that exist in this file, and then here's the contents of all those variables. Yeah, you can always pass things through a parameter using perform mm-hmm. script, definitely. But if you just want just that, just one piece of information and you're using a plugin like ScriptMaster or something else that allows you to define a, a global variable. I, the mm-hmm. SmartPill also has it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just basically just taking advantage of passing the information through memory without actually having to right. perform the external script. Because in order to perform the external script, at least one of the files has to be able to see the other file. That's true. File reference. Correct. External. They yeah, rename external. that, didn't they? And if you want to avoid <laughs> that, then, you know, of course, I don't know why you would, because you almost wa- always want one file to tell another file what to do. So, Matt? Yeah. 
At what point are we getting too geeky here? <laughs> was that was that just around the corner at the next conversation, or did that happen twenty minutes ago? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think our uh, we may be narrowing our audience, but for those that are listening, I'm sure they love it. Yeah, and they're fast asleep. No way! No way! We talk about awesome stuff. Yeah, sure. To us. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. Yeah, that was awesome. That was a good one. It's glad good to catch up. I know. Oh. Talk to you soon.